Also, no one does that. Yeah. Also, no one does that. Also, that must, that can't, I mean, that must happen all the time. I know. It was crazy. Anyway, so then I used to set fire to the outlets in her class. That class would always have to stop because you couldn't see what was happening. But the (laughs) 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 I would throw these little little caps that like explode. Yeah. So they they don't generate like a lot of heat or like energy in any way. But because the outlets were like super wonked out broken on that floor of the high school, they didn't have like outlet covers um, or even really the like plastic part on the outside, you know, Mm -hmm. that looks like a smiley face. It was just straight into the metal part that looks like a smiley face, which underneath it doesn't really look exactly the same. It's just like a raw outlet. It was just like a raw dog outlet. Mm -hmm. So then I would like throw these little tiny explosives Mm -hmm. Mm. To mm. catch fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that her glass would have to be stopped. Mm. For the next few episodes, we are going to be talking about necromancy in America, like the American concept of necromancy, but we're going to talk about it through a historical lens. We're going to be tracing the history of this. We're going to be going back through time and tracing how it made its way into the American psyche, given the various influences and inspirations that came. So we're going to be talking about the Western canon, not just America. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and also like a lot about West Africa. But um yeah. That's so Western, like a- it's in the West. West Africa, hello. I guess. I mean it I doesn't- guess it is. <laughs> it's I mean, I guess so is South America though, and that's not really like the Western Yeah. Should we problematize anyway. the concept of the West right up front? If I go west, I get to Japan. How is it not the West? Listen. Have you ever gone west and gone to Japan? Yes. Because I'm pretty sure you fall off the flat earth. Oh, no, I went east. It's true. You're right. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah, you actually did go to Japan, so I'm like totally <laughs> bullshit. I literally was just like, but have you ever done it? Oh, God, I'm so annoying. So basically, yeah, we're going to talk about there's like um, the American like necromancer idea is like very – it's influenced by like stories from the vi- Bible. Really awesome. Good work, Emma. Stories from the can, Bible. That's when you read the Bible in the Vatican. <laughs> the Bible. This is the Bible. Specifically the um, Septuagint and the – specifically within the Septuagint, the Pentateuch. Okay. Which I believe fun. I'm pronouncing correctly. Okay, fun. Speaking of Greek Orthodoxy, but um, all my Greeks – all my Greeks in the chat, please correct me. Yeah. I'm pretty confident about Septuagint, and I'm not confident about Pentateuch. I would pronounce Pentateur. it Pentateuch, but I don't think it's pronounced Pentateuch. Um, so anyway, stories from from the um, Christian canon. Um, the like ideas of like classical magic uh, in England and Ireland, as well as like. Greco-Roman sort of vibe, and then obviously Vodun, which is the West African um, religion that 
contributed to what we know as voodoo. Obviously. So we're Yeah. Well, I mean it sounds really similar. So if you can't in, in if you can't infer that Vodun became voodoo. Now you know. Now you um, know. So we're just going to talk about those sort of influences and what they were up to in in a few different periods of time. And today we're going to start with classical antiquity, which I'm saying is from roughly the death of Solomon, which is like around 900, maybe 890 BCE, unless it's 980 BCE and I have that backwards, um, to like 700 CE. I use common era and before common era, but it doesn't really matter. It's the same as um, BC and Anno Domini. I don't remember what BC stands for. Then we're going to go like jump. No, it's Latin. It's not before Christ and after death. It's something before in Anno Domini. Mm. Yeah. Before no, but Christo. Latin doesn't have bees in it. It can't I be can't. that. Bees? bees? Yeah, maybe it is. Bees? <laughs> I just watched that episode last night. Um, okay, then we're going to talk about like – we're going to skip ahead because who has the time? Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about <laughs> – because who has the time? We're going to skip to like the Renaissance, discovery of the new world, early colonial era because the Renaissance is like the first big change in the th- – practices that we will come to know as necromancy once America exists. And then the second big change, 1805, the Haitian Revolution. So we'll go up to that in the second episode. And then the last episode, we'll do Haitian Revolution to present. Yeah, that's not all happening in the same episode. That's going to be the arc that we're working on currently. And also, by the way, this is the Phenomena Podcast. and I'm Augusta. And I'm Eva. Part of the reason why these three eras make sense to talk about is because of those major changes that I talked about, which are the Renaissance and the Haitian Revolution, but also because when we're talking about, like, stories of necromancy, this is something I learned from studying ghost stories for so long, Um, which is that stories that are told during a particular time are much more important than what time those stories are told about, right? So the example that's helpful for this is, like, Homer's... Iliad, the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? They're more an anthropological text about the 8th and 9th centuries BCE than they are uh, anthropological texts about the 12th and 11th century BCE, even though that's when they take place, right? Like right. that's the the Trojan War and stuff. Um, and if Odysseus was real, that's when he would have lived. Right. And if Homer was real, he would have lived in the 8th or 9th century BCE. So it's it's more accurately a story about, like, what people are thinking about, worried about, talking about, feeling in that time period, not what they were actually experiencing during the Trojan War. Right. Pour exemple. Right. Um, yeah, so I did a bunch of research on uh, the Greek and Roman period and necromancy within those times. Um, there is a fabulous book called Greek and Roman Necromancy by Daniel Ogden. It's from Princeton University Press mm. that I was able to read for this. Um, I highly recommend it. It's very readable. It's fascinating. Uh, he is a scholar of Greek and Roman. He's a gentleman and a scholar. Yeah. I mean, he's a scholar of Greek and Roman necromancy. What could be cooler? And um, this book is like very thorough and in going into all the different ways that Greek and Roman necromancy were practiced and what it, what it meant and what the ghosts were, but I want us to start by talking about what necromancy actually means. We've talked about this before, Please. but I was just going to ask. 
the ancient Greek, uh, this is, I'm taking this from Merriam Webster here. Great, great, mm. hist- great historians of Love words, her. right? So there's the word nekis, which I'm, of course, not pronouncing correctly, um, but that is from corpse. And uh, from that, we get necromantia and nekiomantia. Um, which are like the raising of corpses or the bringing up of corpses. Um, and then from that, we get the Latin necromantia, which is divination from an exhumed corpse. And then from that, we get the Middle English necromancy, which is sorcery, conjuration of spirits. So you have that mm. lineage of the word necromancy. Um, We'll get into how it changes in the medieval times during our medieval times episode. But those are the origins of Love the that. concept and term necromancy. Our medieval times episode. Yeah, the episode we do That's at medieval the live times. Show we're doing from medieval times. We'll get into that in our White Castle episode. <laughs> yeah, literally. Um, thank you, thank you for that, yeah. and also thank you for pointing out um, the meaning. How the meaning? There's sort of like you see two different things, like the exhumation of bodies and the divination from bodies. So necromancy is kind of like an umbrella for those two things, right? And so, um, especially in Vodun, which we'll talk about, um, which I'm going to repeatedly pronounce several different ways because it's difficult for me to pronounce. Um, sure, you got to get a bunch of tries in there. Is, uh, yeah, Vodun, Vodun. I, I think it's like like the French, like, oh, noise right. that I can't really, like, Vodun. Like, I mean, obviously, it's a, like a language that I have no, uh, it's obviously not French. Um, What the fuck was I saying? Oh, uh, especially when you talk about Vodun, it's important to understand that, like, necromancy is raising the dead. Um. It's communicating with the dead, so it can be divination from spirits or divination from corpses. And the physical corpse and the spiritual corpse are um, often separated, so it's just kind of fun to follow along with different practices like, oh, are they exhuming the spiritual corpse or the physical corpse to do divination? Um and that's like one of the key things that changes about from Vodun into voodoo um, with the Haitian Revolution. But we'll talk about that. So, anyway, <laughs> um, would you tell me a, a wee bit about what necromancy the Greeks and the Romans were doing? I can only think of yes. one example, which is from a Greek play I was in as a child. What play was that? Antigone, the, mm. the part with Tiresias. Oh yeah, what happens? You can't trust Tiresias, that? right? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. I was Tiresias, so you're welcome. You were? Oh my god. Um, that's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool. I cannot remember any of my lines because this is a long time ago. But I do remember that everybody was very impressed. <laughs> um I'm sure they were. But yeah, no, I was like in the core it was like me and two other girls were like the chorus, quote unquote. So we all were Tiresias. Uh anyway, Tiresias was a He's often portrayed as blind, just like Homer. Um, he was like a blind seer. Um, and mm-hmm. there are several times in uh, Greek and Roman plays, like there's a play by Seneca, who's like a Roman playwright also, mm-hmm. um, where various characters like uh, summon the shade, which would be spiritual necromancy, the the spiritual corpse mm-hmm. of Tiresias to speak with him. Right. And every time he's like, 
I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> well, so I that's, wish you didn't do that. That's actually really interesting. That leads into a bunch of the stuff that I discovered in my research. So when he comes back, what form does he come back in? Oh, gosh. In the play, he's like a like a seething mass of shadows yes. that then inhabits people. Yes. So oh, that is... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. I know what you're going to go talk mm-hmm. about. Please. Okay. So the Greek had many different terms to denote the word ghost. And this is, mm. this is an interesting entry point to the concept of necromancy. So we talked a little bit about this in our necromantic law episode, which is, of course, the bridge between our law arc and our necromancy arc. If you haven't listened, I highly recommend going back. It's quite an entertaining episode. But featuring a special guest, featuring a very special, special guests, guests. as many special guests special as you guest have room for in your really heart. Guest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the interesting things, like the core questions of necromancy, there's a couple core questions that it poses as a concept, but one of them is what are you raising? Right. So are you raising mm. the physical body of the dead, in which case this is the creation of a zombie. The Greeks were not about that. (laughs) That was not the concept of the dead that we're working with here. If you know anything about Greek mythology, you know that there's this concept called a shade, which is something akin to a ghost, but not a ghost like the way that we imagine it up to date, not like a Victorian ghost, not like a bedsheet ghost or a glowing white woman. A shade is like a shadow, literally coming coming from the same root word. And um, let me consult my other. So you have shade, you have soul, you have manifestation, you have image, you have dead person, and you have cloud. So those are the different words that, that are used in these texts that we're drawing from these, like, and you know, antiquity texts to understand what constitutes a ghost. And those various versions are what's being brought back, right? So there are records of Greek and some Roman, but mostly Greek death rites that are meant to raise the physical corpses of the dead, but only Mm -hmm. very recently after they've died is the body able Mm -hmm. to be raised along with the shade and the shade is always raised as well. And that's because theoretically the ghost, the shade, has not yet reached the underworld and thus is still on the mortal plane and can be brought back into its body. So there you get the thing with Tiresias, which is that... So then you get this writhing mass of shadows, which is a shade able to inhabit other bodies because, of course, that body and the spirit have been disconnected, right? This this shade has made its way into the underworld. uh, And... Mm -hmm. Then when it's brought back, it's brought back as a shadow of its former self. And in fact, the reason that necromancy, which was putting the shade back into the body, the soul back into the body was possible when the body had recently died is not because once you go into the underworld, you can't come back, but because you don't want to cross over multiple times. It's actually the re-entry that's considered a difficult thing. So Mm. entering the underworld is the thing that the soul is not able to do multiple times because you have to pass the river Styx, you have to go on Chiron... Chiron? Is that how mm-hmm. most people say it? Chiron's fairy? Yeah, Chiron. Um, that is the thing that you don't want to do multiple times. And mm-hmm. that is why a lot of the ghosts that are dragged out in in your play, in Antigone, in the Odyssey, in these various texts that we have to consult are resentful or frustrated by their being dragged out unless they are giving a form of wisdom that has to do with their own death. 
So one of the most right. interesting parts of this book that I read that I thought was absolutely fascinating was called The Wisdom of the Dead. And in it, Ogden, the author, poses the question, why are the dead wise? Because most necromancy is a form of divination in ancient Greek texts. For the most mm -hmm. part, you're not raising the bodies of the dead. You're trying to understand something that has happened and you're at consulting those in the afterlife for that understanding. Mm -hmm. And so... Ogden's like, why would the dead know anything that you need to know, right? Because especially in Greek mythology, actually there's like a place when you're entering into the underworld where you drink from the waters of the underworld, rivers and springs, and you forget everything you knew in your mortal yes. life. So yes. why would it be that the dead are wise? What is the name of that river? Um, I have it written down here. That's a joke. What? Oh, that's funny. It's a joke. <laughs> it's, it's a joke, but I wish that I knew it. This book is so long. Um, I'm going to find it. I know it from an episode of iZombie, funnily enough. Lethe. Yes. It's the waters of the Lethe. Yes. Which so, is, I think, a beautiful name. Beautiful. Oh, my God. So fun reading about this. Such yeah, gorgeous like names. Would it be fucked up if you named your children like Lethe and Styx? You can't really <laughs> – Styx I think is too much. Lethe is a beautiful woman's name though, if you, I think. If you're living in like LA or Brooklyn, it's not fucked up at all. It's totally normal. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's fair. Don't like move somewhere cheap and rural and name your kids Styx because you're just being rude because everybody will just play the band Styx for them and not know what you're talking about. Okay. Go on. That was mean. <laughs> <laughs> you're valid. Um, so – where was I? Oh, that in, especially in Greek mythology, and I think this is something that we take to this day with ghosts. And uh, I don't know if it comes to us directly from Greek mythology, but certainly it's present in it. And I think it's fair to draw this connection. The idea being that ghosts don't have, for the most part, with a few exceptions, which I'll talk about, special knowledge of the world. What they have is knowledge of their own deaths. And in Many of the texts that we're sourcing from, which discuss wars, battles, murders, and you know, vengeance, like all great Greek tragedy does, those ghosts have knowledge that the living require access to because they need to either avenge them or work from a place of understanding mm -hmm. their death. And so, like in the Aeneid, uh, they <laughs> stumble upon these ghosts. Um, I think his name is Pol. Palinurus, who tells Aeneas how he was killed by savages and how he was tricked and mutilated and killed by Helen and Menelaus and the ghosts like flit around yes. the heads and they're complaining about their deaths, like direct quote, like this is coming yes. up over and over they again. They complain in the, um, it's how it's constantly happening in, in the Odyssey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the, the, the Italian one, that's exactly the same. Oh my god, why can't I remember the name? Literally the most famous book in the entire world. Dante's Inferno. Oh, yes. Um, it happens in Inferno, too. They love to complain. The ones that are, like, stuck in the... This, this episode's embarrassing because it reveals how well-read I actually am. <laughs> like, maintaining, like, the fallacy that, like, I'm an idiot. Um, but, yeah, in Inferno, the ghosts, the... Sorry, the shades that are stuck um, in, like, the mire slowly sinking, they, mm -hmm. like constantly are complaining go on yeah and when hermes tracks down the ghosts of the suitors this says they direct quote from the book they come across agamemnon and achilles discussing their deaths with each other and proceed to tell the pair yes. of the circumstances of their death in turn 
even deaths without human agents are discussed. So mothers are describing how they died in childbirth or people are describing how they died by accident. So it's not just Mm -hmm. the very common, like telling you how you're like, oh, I was killed by so-and-so avenge my death. It's also just, I think in generally in Greek mythology and these stories, the dead love to talk about how they died. And that is a particular form of knowledge that, Mm-hmm. necromancy is commonly used for because if that death is useful or relevant to your quest you need to talk to the dead about it because the living certainly aren't going to tell yeah. you right and then i also think just like a brief tangent this is one of the things that um people who theorize about ghosts um whose opinions i don't agree with but let's say you are freud and his student who's a french guy named the Nathaniel, I can't remember his first name, but obviously that's just Nathaniel, but in French. Um, and uh, so the way that they talk about ghosts is that they say that a ghost is an unburied secret or problem mm. in the mind of the living right. that is by the power of the mind located in the body of the dead or in the grave of the dead or in some other memorabilia of the dead. That's interesting. So if you understand yeah. So if you understand ghosts as an as an anxiety of the living, um only mm-hmm. uh, as an ima- as a figment of the living's imagination, you can totally see how across almost every culture um in the world that has ghosts, to to my knowledge, to the the mountains of literature that I have unfortunately read about um, the experiences of the living with ghosts all across the globe um, is that the ghosts will talk to you about how they died. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you read that through the, the way that Freud would l- read that, it's an anxiety about not knowing how you will die mm-hmm. because you can't know how you will die. I mean, short of like some diagnosis, um, but even then you could get hit by a bus. Like there's <laughs> just, that's just like, I mean, some... Some would like call it like the utmost anxiety, you know what I mean, is that you don't know the nature of your death and you don't know what's going to happen after you die. So ghosts are giving you this information and they're the only ones with this information. And if you believe that ghosts are just in the imagination of the living, then it's just the living telling themselves in their own head all the ways that they might die. Yes. And in fact, in this book, the author talks about how in Homer, the ghosts explain the workings of the underworld to Odysseus. And that is not meant specifically as knowledge of like, that's a form of knowledge that the ghosts would have, but also on sort of a symbolic level, that's meant to be a kind of abstract knowledge about life, death, and the universe, right? Like that's a common thing for ghosts to impart as well. Consequences and like kind of a, almost a symbolic geography of death. Yes. And that's like a very particular thing that ghosts are constant, like that necromancy is really able to give people. Yes. Ghosts because, well, maybe not because, but relating to the fact that they have suffered what is often considered the ultimate consequence, which is death. Mm-hmm. Ghosts are symbolic of cause and effect, consequence, and even random misfortune, but random misfortune as the idea of a series of consequences of small things, not true randomness. Right. Um. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it 
So these anguished pontifications of all the ways that you can experience consequences for your actions right. is another thing that's very common for ghosts to tell you. Um, and I would say that's especially in the Western canon. Um, that's less common in other places on earth, but anywhere that had the Greek classics basically um, going into Europe and then, um, yeah, through most of continental Europe, um, you will find this sort of preemptive self-flagellating that is handed down to you from spirits. Mm -hmm. And also I think that so like the kind of platonic Pythagorean Greek tradition handed down a couple of ideas that are similar to that that I think are with us to this day. One being that when you are asleep, your your spirit is slightly detached from your body more so than mm -hmm. when you're awake. And so you're able to have perception yes. into the mortal realm that is uh, not available to you in your waking hours. Yes. Another one being that when uh your when your spirit your shade leaves your body in death you are sort of purified of certain corporeal elements that might fog your perception in life mm -hmm. which though it seems obvious at least to right. me now is actually not does not have to be implied by death like in death you could be precisely the same as you were in life there's no reason that you're kind of fogging mental elements should lift or once less. you leave your body. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Additionally, a thing that's yeah, present so, in Greek mythology that I think oh. is really, oh, sorry, just the last the last little thing I want to throw in there. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, so to return to the Greek mythology element, um, like because, so Tiresias being a very commonly summoned necromanced spirit, um, per what you said about spirits only know what they know is um, – or shades only know what they know, the reason that they're summoning Tiresias is not because he has some omnipotent knowledge of what's happening. It's because in life he was an extremely uh, talented diviner. That's so that's exactly why they call him the – exactly what seer. I was going to say. Right. That's exactly so, oh, what I was going to say. No, no, no. Like it's great. It's back. beautiful. Yeah. It's perfect because there was – in, you know, in the Greek mythology, potentially in the mystery cults too, like it's, you know, hard to know exactly, but there was, there were seers and there were diviners and there were um, prophets even. I mean, they wouldn't be called prophets, but there were those who were able oracles. to receive prophecy. Yeah, oracles. And mm -hmm. so summoning those spirits when they died gave you special access, not because they were dead, but because they had these amazing powers in life and death mm -hmm. was just now they're accessible to you forever so long as you can summon them. Yeah. Summoning usually done through like rituals with yeah. bones and blood and herbs. Yes. And a very, very bloody, the Romans uh, summoning. Uh, I mean, is anything they did not. But uh, <laughs> fuck, you were saying like and, – and the idea of like – the idea of when you die that you – some sort of like physical like blinders fall away from you mm -hmm. is also very common in the Western canon. Um, and there are some other instances of it that are different. Um, you know, the idea that then your spirit is free is very like common um, across the globe. But the, the idea that you are in life, as they say, like shackled to a mortal coil – um, and that that is inhibiting your divine 
either like abilities or connection or something like that. And that when you shed the mortal coil, then you have, you are closer to the divine is something that um, the Greeks very much gave to Christianity. Right. Because you're literally going to a different, you're going to a realm of a god, right? You're going to Hades. Yes. Realm of Hades even. Right. Right. And then in, and then in. Well, yeah, well, we'll get to well, – we'll get to Christianity. We'll get to Christianity. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, one thing that I learned that I didn't know is that especially for the Greeks but also for the Romans, the technology of reanimation – because there were people who would try and reanimate corpses with shades in them when they weren't doing necromantic yes. seeing. But even when they were doing necromantic seeing, the technology of that, which was like blood sacrifice, evocations, herbs – basically, um, was heavily influenced by the Egyptians. And a lot of that is taken from Mm -hmm. Egyptians who were in Greece practicing there. And that is like, in many ways, they feel how a lot of them learned evocation, which I thought was fascinating. And I don't know. Super interesting. I mean, the tragedy of African history, which we'll talk about uh, when we talk about Vodun, is like, it's very difficult to find texts that are accessible um about it um like good sources basically and part of that is because of the hierarchy of what is considered good in like western academic rigor or whatever and then also part of that is just obviously because of the like generations of like genocide and uh, colonial suffering and erasure mass erasure of like history so but if I could summon Tiresias, I would ask him about Egypt and their evocation and like, yeah. what was the vibe? What was the vibe? No, it's great. <laughs> if I could summon Tiresias, I'd ask him, what was the vibe? Vibe check. Yeah. Vibe check Tiresias. <laughs> he climbs out of my eyeballs. My eyes go white. Um, He's a little old man, actually. He's not that, like, physically violent. But he, he is said to have a booming voice. I don't know why I'm talking vibe about this person. Like, check. A, like a celebrity that you might run into. <laughs> yes, it's like, <laughs> vibe check, check, check. I'll just edit the way you said that. I checked the, like, <laughs> echoing off the I'm mountains. editing this one, baby. Uh, oh, you are? Well, then you you can echo it to be editing off the, echoing off the mountains. Editing off the mountains. Uh, so far that... Editing off the mountain so far that uh, who's the guy who's changed the rock for giving us fire and his liver's being eaten by a yeah. dude? It starts with P. It's not Perseus. Prometheus. Prometheus. Oh, that's such a good name. Such a good name. Why does everyone not have Greek names? That's what I need to know. I know. <laughs> like everybody, the law is everybody. I remember even as a kid, like I loved the names in the Greek mythology books. They're so Those beautiful. Were my favorite Bellicera cards. They're such beautiful names. Hello, even Antigone. Antigone is oh, a beautiful that name. Was like, beautiful name. Arachne. Beautiful mm. name. Um. Do you want to talk about? Let's get on topic. Christ. Literally always. Have you heard the good word? <laughs> no. Um. In the Bible. In the Bible. In the Bible. So the Bible. There's this drama, um, in which Saul, who was a biblical figure, who I don't know that much about, to be honest, didn't read the Bible. Actually, that's not true. I read Genesis. It was so boring I couldn't get through the rest. Uh. 
But Saul was in a war, as one often is during the Bible, with the Philistines, who mm-hmm. you might know from the phrase Philistine, meaning someone who is uncultured. They lived in Canaan or Canaan. Canaan, which is like the region of the Middle East that or the West Asia, um, where the Bible takes place. Um so the Philistines, there's this big dramatic scene in the Bible where the Philistines and their army like come up um to the hills of Gilboa, where um Saul is like Saul and the last of his uh forces remain. And then there's like this pontification about how afraid he is. He is repeatedly uh attempting to contact Attempting to contact God makes it sound like God left him on red, but like he's repeatedly invoking God and like attempting to get some sort of divine guidance from God. Tell me what to do. And God's like, (laughs) I'm not going to tell you what to do. So then he asks his servants. He's like, I don't know what to do. And one of his servants is like, there's this necromancer. Her name is the Witch of Endor. She does not have a name. She's just the witch of Endor. If we go to Endor, she can call upon Samuel. So Samuel is a prophet, apparently. He's venerated as a prophet by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Uh, And he is an important figure in the transition in actual history, but also in the Bible, um, between the idea of like biblical and religious judges into holy kingdoms um, or like divine the divine right of kingdoms so this is like a thousand bce Mm -hmm. so they disguise themselves so they can go to endor they have like this deeply dramatic like sneak through the night to um that's me sneaking yeah they're like don't be suspicious don't be suspicious don't be suspicious don't be yeah so um so they get to endor which is sometimes spelled e-n-d-o-r and is sometimes e-n hyphen d-o-r but endor and they're able to contact uh the witch of endor and she's like yeah bro absolutely my friend um let's do it that's exactly what she says that's biblical that's so (laughs) so she she what's interesting about the way that it's phrased and obviously the bible is translated into many different languages but what's interesting about the witch of endor is that she's basically called like she's she's not called a witch in the thing she's called a woman and then the way that like semitic languages are a woman who is the possessor of and then this word called ob Mm. And an ob could mean a spirit, but it also could mean a talisman that's used to summon spirits. Mm. And it also sometimes specifically is like a, a – what's that thing called that people used to drink out of that was like made of like a bladder? Like a bladder of like wine or – A skine, a skein? Yes, a, like a skin, like a like a yeah, yeah, that that thing. People <laughs> who play fantasy games know what we're talking about. Like it's like made out of like yeah, heroes it's made of, out of like magic organ. heads. No, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so then also, one of the things that she professes to be able to do is see. She sees um, the the rising of Elohim. Mm. 
But the way that it is in that context, the word Elohim, the way that that verb is conjugated is that it's pluralized. So the interpretation of that is not meaning that she sees God rising, where usually Elohim means God, Mm -hmm. um, because it was written with the plural verb, which again, we're putting like a lot of confidence in the right. This is one of those moments in in, in text interpretation where you just have to assume that the writer was being intentional or the translator was being intentional. So that's where people are getting the idea that she sees spirits of the dead because she sees spirits or gods rising, not just she talks to God, which is also what that could mean if the verb had been in the tense that is usually used to refer to God. So it's difficult because that's what she's called in biblical Hebrew. And then in in the Septuagint, which is the Greek deuterocanonical collection um, for the Greek Orthodox Church, they refer to her as like a common pagan oracle of Endor, right? So in Gastromythos, which I guess is like a different oracle that was like Greek. Um, so they call her like Engastromythos of Endor. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. as if it's like, oh, she's the Paris Helen of Endor. <laughs> like, you know, so so in that way, that would be like a pagan oracle. So you can right. see how n- not only in the Greek translation, but also in this story, that's a Greek influence. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that that they are seeing like shades rise. Um, so anyway, and then it's called like she causes the shade of Sam- Samuel. So that's what happens. She causes the shade of Samuel. And the shade of Samuel says that he's going to die. <laughs> so, um, oh, but he also complains of being disturbed. So again, we see a Greek influence or at least something that's in common with the Greek story is that he's like, why would you do this? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm a good dude and I'm busy. He basically tells Saul, like, you disobeyed God. You're going to die. Ciao. Um, Ciao. So, yeah, he's like, you and your whole army, it's over. Tomorrow you're all dead. And the next day there's conflicting accounts of whether Saul kills himself or somebody – he asks someone to kill him so that he doesn't have to kill himself or if he dies in battle. But he dies. <laughs> so the last thing before we leave the story of the Witch of Endor proper. So one of the things that happens during the, during the causing the shade of Samuel is supposedly the witch – um, or Ngathri Mythos in Endor. Um, that's not a Greek accent. I don't know what that was. <laughs> uh, supposedly the witch or the sorceress or the pagan oracle um, is startled by the appearance of Samuel. So some people who are working in their scholarship to eradicate pagan forces from the Bible say that that shows that that was not her doing but that god caused the appearance of samuel as like sort of a messenger prophet right to tell saul to basically fuck off how do you feel about that how i feel about that is that it's very difficult to interpret the bible for so many thousands of reasons chiefly being time depth and secondly being Magical realism was the norm of historical writing at the time. Right. I think it's more likely that the intention of the whoever the writer is, it's more likely that the intent of the surprise 
of the Witch of Endor in my personal – what is it called when people, like, read? Opinion. The Bible. Uh, Bible. Interpretation. There's, like, a name for the – yeah, there's a name for like the field of Bible interpretation. But anyway, my personal totally uneducated opinion that has more to do with the fact that this story is one of the more like dramatic tales in the Bible and that Samuel was so great that it's like, oh, my God, blinded by the light. Mm. I think it's highly unlikely that anybody like went to a pagan oracle and then the pagan oracle was like, oh, hold on, I got a call coming in and it's God. Like, and he's like, hold on, I got this. Like, I'll take this one. Like, he's like her manager taking a table. Like, I don't think that happened. So, I mean, I also don't think about it. But, <laughs> but I also don't think that the writers of the Bible were intending to say that, like, after repeated attempts by Saul to contact God, after flipping God the bird and, and God flipping the bird right back, then he travels to see this witch, and then that's when God decides to be like, okay, fine, I'll give you your answer. Your answer is you're going to die. Right. Like, I don't see why that would be – I don't see why that makes any – I mean, the Bible's full of strange things, but that doesn't even make – doesn't even make sense as a collection of tales, right. which is kind of what, like, the Bible is. Um, yeah, so that would be, like, the Luther Bible mm. is one where it's like mm – -hmm. and then Samuel appeared, and she was like, whoa, 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 what? <laughs> It's interesting. She's like, doggy, doggy, what now? It's interesting in that story because here you have something that this is not an example that I talked about in the Greek and Roman myths, but I feel like this is a lot more present in the Bible, though it does exist in the Greek and Roman myths, of course. One in which, one, there is an implied moral separation between the dead and the living, as in, I think, in the Greek tradition, yes. it's, it's not wrong to call back someone from the dead. There's no taboo on it. It's just really hard and the dead might be mad at you. Yeah. But the gods aren't going to punish you for pulling a shade. You can be right. punished for trying to make someone escape from the underworld and come back to life, but that's not the same thing as communication with the dead. And I think implied right. within your story right. is that knowing the answer may not give – like the answer is not going to be what you want it to be and it can actually lead to catastrophe and ruin. Whereas a lot of the time in Greek myths, you learn the answer and it's like, yes, just go home and see your beautiful wife. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not always that – Right. The, it's not always that these answers right. belong the answer... in the domain of God and that trying to seek them out can cause horrible things to happen to you. It really is just like, yeah, I mean, avenge my death. Right. And that ties into this idea that's like very intrinsic that – this, this very intrinsic idea where the dead only know what they know right. kind of thing because when you ask in the in Greek tradition when you ask the dead like oh I have a question here's the like can you give me the answer mm -hmm. they just give the answer and the answer always is always was there's no confirmation bias like we talk about with other things like right like that was the answer right. that's what they know um and there's not really a consequence for the summoner in terms of like, but how dare you try to know this? Right. There's other things in the Greek tradition that are how dare you try to know this? We just talked about Prometheus and even Arachne. Like, how dare you have the knowledge of this thing? How dare you have the proficiency of this um, craft? Um, but that's not really so much the case, except that when you summon a, sh with summoning shades, except that when you summon a shade, he might be like, ugh! <laughs> it took me forever to get here. Whereas traffic was so bad <laughs> on the 101 to the 405. Yeah. Whereas like the Christian canon very much, um, especially the Hebrew Bible, like 
and we'll see this again when we go into the Renaissance and we talk about Italian Catholicism, we'll really see, um, like the Latin, uh, we'll really see how much trouble you can get in for trying to talk to the dead. Mm. And that's for a million reasons, but we'll get into it at that time. So the last thing I want to talk to talk about right now is like what's happening in Voden at this time, which is a little more more disparate from the relationship that um, Greco-Roman mythology has with Christianity. Voden does not have as much of an influence at this time. But I just want to, like, check in with the gang of all the, like, influences that we're going to talk about and see what they're up to. How are you, girly? So, during this time – hi, girly. <laughs> um, so during this time, Voden is very much still practiced. It's not the biggest religion in um, West Africa. So in general, to just paint with the broadest brush, traditional African religions – as they are known in anthropology, barf term, but are highly varied, very, very diverse in belief and practice. But in general, they are polytheistic or even animistic. So the idea that the veneration is to a pantheon, a broad pantheon with tiers of different gods Mm -hmm. and powerful spirits. Some of them do have a great creator, like like a, like at the very tip top, there is one great creator, but that's not the same as the monotheistic, right. like Abrahamic God. And there is a lot veneration of the dead is as important as it is everywhere else, maybe more. Right, it's very important. Um, and the the way that the spirit is connected to the body is more an idea of existing in a constant harmony with other spirits of nature and geography and other people at all times rather than the idea of having your spirit be within your body your whole life then you die and your spirit is banished somewhere else Mm. that's not what's happening so the in Voden specifically there are these Vodin literally are spirits. Right. So the Vodin spirits, and we call it Vodin, the religion. There are these sort of like divine, they're not dissimilar from chakras, like the idea of this like essence mm-hmm. or like, yeah, like the essence of earth. And they each are ascribed to different um, forces, objects, presences. Um, and... Some of them are attached to – this is something that is in common with Japan and the Americas at this time, which is that there's, like, this vast range of, like, you might have a spirit that is the – that is the Vodin, the divine essence of one stream, one significant tree. But then you also might have one that is the divine essence of all lakes and trees in a massive region of Africa. So – they do have there is one divine creator also in Vodin. Um, she is called Mawu or Mahu sometimes. Mm. Um, and essentially she is the moon. And then essentially Lisa is the sun. It might be pronounced Lisa. Mm-hmm. Essentially is the sun. And Lisa is essentially male 
and Mau and Mahu is essentially female. Okay. And these are the creators and destroyers. So that is oh. the creator and the destroyer. Which one is which? Kind of. So Mawu, the moon, is the female, is the creator. And right. then of course. Lisa, the sun, the male, is the destroyer. Of course. So there's like a common p- proverb that says like when Lisa when Lisa punishes, Mawu forgives. Mm. So it's like sure. they have this dichotomy at the very top, but then it goes all the way down. And all creations, all locations, all people, all groups have these like are divine and have these divine essences, these vodun. So there might be a vodun of you. you well, your vodun would not be as powerful as the vodun of like a river, right. but there is like a spiritual essence within you. So there are some things in common between vodun and Greco-Roman mythology that we're familiar with um, that you maybe even heard when I was talking about Mawu. So obviously Artemis and Apollo, Mawu and Lisa, they're very similar, um, though I would say Artemis is not really seen as that giving. Um, Yeah. I mean, it seems like the moon in this case has like some, what of a matriarchal archetype to it. And Artemis is specifically not a mother. It's part of what is so unique about her in the astrological canon. Yes. Astrological. Why yes. did I say astrological? The fuck? No, I <laughs> um, Yeah. So it's like, again, we see this thing where it's like, I wish that we could know, but we can't know um, because of so um, – and also partially because many um, like African religions and Vodun are um, – they're oral rather than scriptural, right? So we could know if – scriptural scholars cared enough to take down a scripture of this oral tradition, but also part of what makes an oral practice different than a scriptural practice is the way that it changes and adapts to serve the people in it over time because it can change more than there's not this constant scriptural fight basically between different sects the way there is in scriptural religions like Christianity. Um, and we'll see how that like flexibility and that service to the people who um, are a part of the system of Vodun um, really change, I mean, culture forever um, later on. But yeah, so you can see it's like, it's impossible to know like, is Mawu the sun and Lisa the, sorry, Mawu the moon and Lisa the sun. Obviously they're not Artemis and Apollo, right. but they're twins and one's a male and one's a female and it's the same correlation. Right, one's the sun and, and one's the moon. Right, and and Apollo certainly has very similar characteristics to Lisa. Right. Um, even if Mawu doesn't really have similar characteristics to Artemis. So it's just interesting to think about like, Again, this doesn't have as much of an exchange with Christianity at this time or as much of an exchange with Greek mythology, but you can certainly see how this vast pantheon of this pantheon of divine essences is compatible with Greek divinity and with early Christian like as Christian and pagan, you know, started to separate from one another, the idea of veneration of saints. And that's how Vodin was so easily absorbed into mm, the French Christianity. That's interesting. When France came through West Africa. The same way basically that, you know, Brazilian um, pagan deities were like sort of absorbed into the Spanish Christian canon, sorry, <laughs> the Portuguese Christian canon um, when the Portuguese came over. So anyway, so that kind of thing. So that's how Vodun eventually, which we'll get to, gets tied in. And this is obviously like um, 
and it's not even the most common religion, but it is a common religion. Um, and people in West Africa, and it becomes more popular um, in the diaspora even. So that's like Ghana, Nigeria, Benin, Togo. Right. Is Benin even a country anymore? I don't think so. Okay. The country that was once Benin. <laughs> oh, République de Benin. Um, well, yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you for bringing that. I think that the three of those, those three examples have a lot of interesting overlap and parallel. And there's a lot of interesting, like the relationship. It's like the two core multi-directional relationships that inform how a culture thinks about necromancy, right? One being the relationship between the dead and God. Well, three, one being the relationship between dead and the dead and God, one or the gods, one being the relationship between the dead and the living, and one being the relationship between the gods and the living. And the direction and the force Absolutely. and the omnipotence and the devotion required in those relationships really informs how necromancy and necromantic practice is told through myth and legend and what stories necromancy is used to tell, whether it's one of punishment, of humans overstepping the limits of what they're able to know, or whether it's one of revenge and death, or whether it's just one of, you know, plain old tragedy, right? Like speaking to the dead and they talk back and right. and you find out something right. terrible. Right. Right. Oh, so I should say what's going to be relevant about Vodun is that there are many ceremonies that involve invoking these these uh, Vodun, these um, spirits and divine essences. But at this time, those are not considered any kind of necromancy practice because there is not – it's not the idea that you are reaching in and pulling a spirit out of another world. It's just the idea that you're giving a spirit a ring. Hey, can you come by? I have a Right. It's, there's no summoning. There's, yeah, there's, there's, there's ritual that's involved in contacting, but it's not, yeah, it's not summoning in the sense that like they are in another plane or an ether that is right. other and they have to journey through the underworld XYZ to get here. It's like, no, they're here. You need to be in a certain state to see and interact with them. Right. You need to practice, you need to uphold your half of the obligation of the ritual to speak to them but not necessarily in the literal sense that you are causing them to come to you. In the same right. way I think I talked about that being true about using the Ouija board. Like yes. it's not that there's necessarily an inherent power in you touching that. It's about fulfilling your side of deliberate engagement with the process. Yes. Making yourself available. Making yourself available. Checking your sketch. Terms and conditions, in. baby. Terms and conditions. But yeah, so that's part one. That's what's happening. I guess we didn't really do Merlin, but I don't think we need to. We'll get to Merlin. I think Merlin. that's good. Well, he's like year 500. So I don't we wanna, could do him now. No, come on. Merlin okay. in this day no. and age? No. 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 Um, okay. No. So yeah, so next week, by which I mean in two weeks. So <laughs> this episode's coming out June 11th. So um, before our next episode – June 20th at 5 p.m. Western, 8 p.m. Eastern, um, we are going to be doing another live stream on our YouTube channel. That's tiny.url slash phenomena live, or just search the Phenomena Podcast with Augusta Chapman on YouTube, um, about the cultural behemoth that is Danny Phantom. He's a phantom. Yeah. 
He's fandom. And then the episode that comes out the 25th, we'll be talking about necromancy renaissance through 1805. Then the last one will be July 9th. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the live. Illy. Bye.